It's good to be together again, and it's good to see a few friends who've been having a bit of a break over the summer able to join with us. That's good because it reminds me that I need to explain things as we go along through the service. We are going to begin our worship this morning by singing number 12 in the hymn book, and it is also going to appear on the screen if you'd prefer to follow it there. Jesus calls us here to meet him as through word and song and prayer, we affirm God's promised presence where his people live and care. If you're able to stand, I invite you to do so as we sing. So let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. It's hard to imagine that someone gives an invitation to come as you are and really means it. And yet that's just what we have sung in relation to God as revealed in Jesus. So we come to you, God of all creation, amazed that you really do welcome us as we are. A bit tired and grumpy after a busy week. A bit frayed around the edges from worry or anxiety. A bit lackadaisical or reluctant because Sunday is our one day off. A bit giddy with excitement at the thought of a holiday or an outing. A bit intense and ever so sincere, wanting to get it right. 
just as we are with all our different feelings. You welcome us and we're glad. We come to you grateful for the things that have made us happy this week, large or small, significant or commonplace. We come to you sorry for the times when we feel that we've let ourselves down, acts or omissions, words or thoughts. We come to you needing to be reassured that your forgiveness really is endless, that your love knows no bounds, and your welcome really is for all people. We come to you as people who are trying to follow Jesus, doing our best to work for the incoming kingdom, for which we now pray in the words Jesus taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So this week, our Polar Explorers theme takes us to look at the character of Saul, or Paul. Uh, It's uh, not always the easiest Bible character to get along with, it has to be said. But uh, provided I can manage to drive this fancy new Windows 10, um, we will have his story. so badly. Yeah, that blizzard was incredible. A bit like me. The incredible blizzard. Did you see what I did there? (laughs) Yeah, I like it. You are incredible, Blizz, but that snowstorm was just incredibly scary, and you're just incredibly lovely. Oh, thanks, Gemma. I didn't check the compass before we left. If I had, then I would have known that it wasn't working properly. It was only when we were in the thick of the snowstorm that I realised, and then it was too late, and we'd lost our way. Well, we were all together, and we were safe. We were warm with our fur coats on. Well, yeah, but we had to just stop where we were. There was no way we could keep going, probably in the wrong direction. It's just a good job that other team of explorers found us when they did. They could spot your bright high-vis harness there in the snowstorm. I think it was God who sent them, you know. If it wasn't for them, we'd still be stuck out there, unable to see and not knowing where to go. Yeah, well, I'm glad we're home safely now. I didn't like feeling lost. Well, I don't think anyone does, Bliss. And sometimes it's possible to feel lost even when you know where you are. How do you mean? Well, if someone, say, isn't being very kind to you, or perhaps things are happening to you that you wish would stop, or maybe something's happened that makes you feel scared, then it's really easy to feel lost. It's important in those times you find someone you can trust to talk to. I know what you mean about feeling lost even when you know where you are. It's really difficult. I hope that anybody who felt like that would find someone to help them, just like we did. Hey, are we going to have some food? 
Yeah, good idea. But I think we'll have a story first. And I know just the one. Getting lost in that snowstorm today reminds me of the story of Saul. Really? Saul? Did he have a sledge and a husky team and a broken compass? <laughs> no, he didn't. But he was very lost and going in the wrong direction. And he couldn't see. So he needed someone to help show him the way. Come round here and I'll show you. Oh, great. Saul was someone who thought he was always right. He was so sure he knew what was right that he was good at telling others too. This didn't always make him very popular. And ever since he was a boy, he had become known as someone who liked an argument and who usually won it. The thing was, he just wouldn't give in. And eventually, most people simply gave up and accepted Saul's point of view. Saul, however, would say that it wasn't his point of view that was right, but God's truth that he was defending. He grew up in a home that was very religious, and he loved the traditions and laws of his people, the Jews. When he was a young man, he went to a school where he became an expert in the stories of old, and then made it his business to tell everyone what he thought was right and what he thought was wrong. When Saul began to hear about a man called Jesus that some people claimed had been raised from the dead, he became worried and found out as much as possible about him. He had heard some things about Jesus that made him think that his own way and the ways and traditions of his people were under threat. He felt he had to do something about it. He thought he knew what was right and he wasn't going to let anyone spoil it. He had been visiting the city of Jerusalem when one young man called Stephen, who was a friend of Jesus, had tried to argue that Jesus was the chosen one of God and Saul had stood by when the angry crowd had dragged Stephen away. Although he hadn't joined in, he had looked after the cloaks of the men who were throwing stones, and by doing so, had shown that he felt that this dreadful thing was the right thing to do. After this, he had decided to try his very hardest to stop people believing in Jesus and make it difficult for the church that was growing day by day. It just didn't make sense, and it needed stopping straight away, whatever the cost. So Saul began to go around the town, chasing those who were friends of Jesus and making them leave town. If they didn't run away first, he made sure they were put in prison quickly. The problem was, though, he heard that some of those who were running away were telling others about Jesus as they went. And so he quickly decided to go after them. He decided to head for a town called Damascus and asked the high priests in Jerusalem to give him letters to the places where people worshipped in Damascus, telling them to help him put a stop to all this. Saul set off on the road to Damascus, walking with others who he knew agreed with him. Suddenly, there was a blinding light which seemed to flash all around Saul. A voice called his name and said, Why do you persecute me? As he knelt on the ground, Saul said, Who are you, Lord? But even as he said the words, he knew the answer. I am Jesus, said the voice. Get up and go to the city and you'll be told what to do. Saul couldn't speak. He was so overcome by the fact that Jesus really was alive and that he had been doing the wrong thing all along. He felt so bad inside and felt that he could go no further. This seemed like the worst day of his life. But there was hope because Jesus had told him to go to the city and something would happen there. He felt sure that somehow he could be forgiven, make a new start and 
Well, what came next was too impossible to think about, but at least there was hope. Struggling to his feet, Saul realised that he still couldn't see. He felt his eyes to make sure they were open, and they were, but he was completely unable to see. Suddenly, he felt a hand on his arm and the voice of one of his friends. Up he gets, Saul, his friend said. We'll take care of you. Saul was so grateful and managed to stumble along the rest of the way to Damascus. Now, in the town, there was a man called Ananias. He was a friend of Jesus, and he had come to believe that Jesus was the chosen one of God. Just as Saul had heard the voice of Jesus on the road, Ananias also heard that voice, but this time in his own home. Here I am, Lord, he responded. The voice told him to go and find Saul in a house on Straight Street and that he should pray with him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias had heard about Saul and the trouble he was causing for the friends of Jesus, so he was afraid and said so to God. Ananias could hardly believe it when God told him that Saul was going to become a great messenger for Jesus. But that was all he needed to hear. He knew that the Holy Spirit can change a person completely and make them brand new. He believed that when God was at work in a person, you should never believe they are too bad to change. He immediately got up and went to the place where Saul was staying, still unable to see and praying. Ananias didn't know, but God had already shown Saul that Ananias would come to him and help him. As he was shown into the room, Ananias looked at the man before him, so small and broken and so in need of knowing God's love for himself. It seemed that Saul's blindness was a picture of his whole life, how what he thought was right had been wrong all along. But now God was helping him to see the truth. Ananias spoke to him and the first word he said went straight to Saul's heart. Brother, he said. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. Suddenly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and they were opened. The first face he saw was that of Ananias, his brother, smiling and laughing. Come on, said Ananias, let's get you baptised, washed clean with water to show you want to start your life afresh as a friend of Jesus. And then we'll all have some food. It looks like you're going to need your strength. God's got an amazing plan for your life. No one is ever too bad for God. Wow, Gemma, that's amazing. Even Saul wasn't too lost for God. That's right. And it reminds me that when I'm feeling a bit lost, God can always help me find my way. I guess everyone feels lost sometimes. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes we're lost because of the choices we make. Every single person has done things or said things or thought things that really upset God. But God wants each and every person to know that he still loves them and wants them to be forgiven. And once they know that they'll be able to go in the right direction again. That's right, Blitz. And uh, I think I know which direction you'd like us to go in now. To the kitchen! I'm going to sing a song now, and it's one of the ones that I think those of us who know it enjoy singing. It's a bit of fun, but it also has a lot of truth in it. If you're black or if you're white or somewhere in between, God loves you. 
God loves you when you're good and God loves you when you're bad. You better believe it. God loves you. Please stand if you're able as we sing together. closely linked to the theme than others, it has to be said. If you are somebody who needs to move about and run, rush around, then make your way to the memorial room, which is the active zone where we've got lots of jigsaws and building blocks and things to play with today. If you would like to use your hands to create something whilst you're listening, make your way to the mezzanine, to the creative zone, where you can make a mosaic photo frame. If you would like to colour or do a word search or to read the scriptures in their original form or the English translation of the original form anyway or ponder some questions then feel free to make your way to the snug where we've got all of the above. If you fancy any of that but think well I'd rather take it home then go and get the stuff and come back and sit down and you can stay in the contemplative zone and listen to me talk uh, which will be followed by a creative act of prayer. So we're going to have some music that lasts about two minutes, minute and a half, two minutes, to allow you just to move around to where you would like to go to continue to explore this theme around the story of Saul and whether or not it's possible to be too bad.
if there's one character in the Bible who's almost certain to get people's hackles up, it's Paul. The small man previously known as Saul of Tarsus, at whose feet we lay the blame for much, if not all, that we think is wrong with the church or wrong with Christianity. And whilst that's understandable, and I've certainly done it myself, perhaps that's a little harsh. And we need to be very careful not simply to blame the man for what 2,000 years of Christian orthodoxy has made of the record of his thoughts and ideas that is contained within the canon of Scripture. Perhaps in selecting Saul or Paul as their example of somebody who is never too bad, Scripture Union offers us an opportunity to consider whether or not Paul is capable of rehabilitation, whether we've judged him fairly, and whether his story has anything to say to us today. As I pondered his story, I couldn't help but spot similarities with the characters we've already met. There was disillusioned Cleopas, whose hopes lay in tatters. There was impetuous Peter, who never did entirely change, but certainly experienced endless second chances. There was the nobody, Stephen, who made the most of whatever opportunities came his way. And Philip, whose faith led to him to travel enormous distances, sharing the good news of Jesus. You see, in some ways, Saul was like everyone else, no different from them. Just as actually every single one of us, in some ways, is just like everybody else. And yet at the same time, he, like each one of us, was unique with his own story, his good characteristics and his bad characteristics, his successes and his disappointments. If any of the stories we've heard so far is about the power of redemptive transformation and the weaving of experience into a bigger, more beautiful pattern, then it must surely be Saul or Paul. We don't really know very much about Saul of Tarsus, except that, in his own words, he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was single, quite possibly widowed, because usually a Pharisee had to be married. He knew how to make tents, and he was a Roman citizen. But that doesn't tell us much about him as a person. I wonder how you'd describe him. I wonder what we can deduce from the glimpse we get in his early encounters with the Jesus movement. A Pharisee for sure, and a very diligent one, studying the minutiae of the law and earnestly trying to live the right way. Zealous, perhaps even legalistic, more concerned with the correct tithe on his herbs than the fate of the beggar he passed on his way to the temple. A literalist, perhaps, or a fundamentalist, obsessed not just with the legalistic details, but fearful of heresy or contamination by ideas of people who didn't see things his way. An extremist, determined to do away with those who disagreed with his religious viewpoint, if not actually carrying out the murders, then at least sanctioning them, holding the coats, and securing the arrest warrants. 
Was he a bad man or a misguided man? I wonder how he had become, to use the language we might use today, radicalised. Who was it who encouraged him in bigotry or hatred? How did they convince themselves that they alone had the truth? Was he, in some senses, maybe a victim too? Is our view of Saul perhaps a little more harsh than we like to recognise? Suddenly, everything that Saul had known and believed was thrown into disarray. A visionary encounter with Christ left him physically blind. And if we're honest, we know that psychological trauma today can cause temporary blindness in people, and I suspect that's kind of what was going on there. But suddenly, he was totally at the mercy of other people. In a complete turnaround of events... The persecutor is in peril. He can't take care of himself. He can't carry on on the way to Damascus because he can't see the way. And guided there by his companions, he has to wait three long days before somebody comes to see him. Ananias, one of the believers, arrives at the house. I wonder how either of them felt about that. Nervous? Frightened, suspicious. I wonder how I might have felt, how we might have felt in the same kind of circumstances. Suddenly at the mercy of those you have opposed. And what Ananias does is incredible. It could be brave, it could be foolish, but he reached out the hand of friendship towards the man who had actively sought to destroy the Jesus movement. A man who had come to arrest and imprison him, and quite possibly worse. And Saul, to his amazement, discovered that this man didn't ridicule, didn't criticise, and particularly didn't extract revenge. But rather he welcomed and cared As the DVD said, he called him brother. Every so often on the television, we will see images of people meeting with their former oppressors or persecutors. Japanese prison guards and people who had been prisoners. Former terrorists or people of opposing views reach out hands, exchange words, and something happens. Forgiveness, embrace, reconciliation, the start of a process that could go forwards. That seems to be pretty much what happened here. Something incredible. But life wasn't easy for the newly renamed Titch, or Paul if you want to put it in a slightly posher words. Not unreasonably, the believers were sceptical, fearful that this conversion was just a cover story to get access to their meetings and arrest them all. And at the same time, the Jewish authorities were now after him, betrayed by a man who'd been so zealous in their cause. He was forced to escape and flee back to Jerusalem, 
where he would be met by more suspicion and more distrust. He might have been forgiven by God, but human acceptance and integration to a new community would take time. He was really blessed to find a friend in a man called Barnabas who stood alongside him and vouched for him. And that was a risky choice. The apostles could have become cross with Barnabas and Paul could have become cross with Barnabas. Barnabas, whose name I'm sure we all know means the son of encouragement, was somebody who always looked for and so found the best in people. Even in Paul, the former persecutor, now turned equally enthusiastic follower of Jesus. If we had time, which we don't, we could tell of Paul's incredible missionary journeys. Talk about the time he argued with Peter over circumcision or about food offered to idols. We could hear how he learned from Greeks in Athens, how his faith and his thoughts were shaped by his adventures before eventually he himself was arrested and persecuted. The primary legacy that Paul left for us is in the letters that are part of the New Testament. Seven of those letters are definitively attributed to him, two are possibly by him, and five almost certainly written in his name by others. But in those letters, we have a body of complicated, sometimes contradictory, and certainly challenging material. And it's really easy to fall into the trap of blaming the writer for what he wrote, or may have written, under the guidance of God's Spirit. When actually, if we step back, our annoyance more lies with the way that the church has used or abused those words out of context throughout the centuries. The story of the Christian church at its best is of ordinary women and men trying to live out their faith in a challenging and confusing world. At worst, though, it includes religious extremism and pogroms, xenophobia, misogyny, homophobia, oppression and violence. Certainly, fundamentalism and legalism are ever-present And all of us have to be just a little bit wary lest we slide into our own versions of them, whatever our theological persuasion. Zeal's not a bad thing, and commitment and conviction rightly directed and worked out in consultation with a wider community of faith can be hugely fulfilling, liberating and rewarding. Diligence in studying the scriptures, taking into account good scholarship alongside tradition and experience, can indeed inform faithful discipleship. The thing is that we, whether we like it or not, are the 21st century Christian establishment. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. So long as we never become so small-minded and narrow-minded that zeal Legalism or fundamentalism lead us to the very real risk of extremism. I know that there have been times in my own story when I've tended to be legalistic or narrow-minded in my understanding of scripture. I continue to work a journey 
reflecting and revising my understandings, and I'm grateful for God, to God for that. But I do wonder whether Titch of Tarsus, as I've chosen to call him, Saul, Paul, or any other name you choose to give him, gives us in some senses a mirror to see ourselves and our own potential for good or ill. Where on that sort of spectrum from um, diligence to extremism would we put ourselves and how would we seek to move within that? I also wonder who for us has been like Ananias or Barnabas, who've kind of supported us and stood by us when others doubted us and questioned us. And I wonder for myself and for each of us, if we could dare to be Barnabas or Ananias for a present-day Saul, a Christian, an agnostic, an atheist, or somebody of another faith or worldview, who could we come alongside and encourage and vouch for and say, come on folks, give this person a chance. And if we did so, I wonder what future apostle to the outsiders we might encounter and encourage in their own journey of faith. Paul's still not my favourite person in the Bible, but I continue to reflect on how much I dislike him for who he is and how much I'm shaped by the traditions that have led me to think that. There is no one too bad for God. There is no one beyond the redemptive love of God revealed to us in Christ. I think some of the coffee club folk are here this morning. Uh, Not so long ago, we had a trip to Peebles. And whilst we were there, a number of us took the opportunity to look at the very ornate war memorial which consists of a beautiful mosaic cross. Small, sometimes broken or damaged tiles, carefully combined to make something very beautiful. This idea of making something beautiful and new out of what is ugly, broken or ugly often inspires Christians with a creative streak, even, I can't say it, to decorate crosses using pieces of broken crockery to form an abstract yet beautiful mosaic. Well, in the interest of health and safety, um, I couldn't get you a load of broken uh, crockery to use today, and I only had small crosses that I could get hold of. But as our response, as our prayer this morning, we have an opportunity to create one or two mosaic crosses which we will hang within this church as a symbol of prayer, and a sign of our interconnectedness in all our diversity, in all our brokenness, in all that we are, however we are. I'm going to use a piece of uh, Graham Kendrick as a background. You can sit and listen to that if you'd like to, or you're very welcome to come and work on the crosses. I think Neil's disappeared, which is a shame, because I was going to get him to put the stuff on, because he knows far more about doing tiling than I do. But there will be a piece of music, and please, anybody, any place, any of the zones in this room, if you would like to come and add a tile or tiles to the crosses, feel free to do so. And then we will just close in a very, very short spoken prayer. Beautiful bro-
God of the poor and the weak, God of the rich and the powerful, God of every one of us, young or old, whoever we are, however we are. We offer you ourselves and we offer you our prayers in the name of Christ. Amen. And now we will regroup to share together around the Lord's table. and ask you to help us to spend them wisely as we seek to share the good news of Jesus in this community and beyond. Amen. Children are people who live in a land made of raindrops and 
puddles and pebbles and streams, silently watching a twig as it sails on a clear crystal pool to an island of dreams. There go a pair who have just built a city of mud, and it's real. They know that mud doesn't look very pretty, but oh, how it feels. This little boy greets the snow with a smile. That little girl has discovered an isle made out of pillows. One little fellow is friends with the wind in the willows. All of them children, and all are mysterious people. I can remember when I was quite small that my bed was a ship, that I sailed through the night, and I can remember the world as a place that was eager and loving and shiny and bright. Where is the child who is friends with the rainbow and once rose upon? Where is that shy and mysterious person, or where have I gone? I can remember I once said my prayers. But now I stand by while our children say theirs, watching them kneeling. And I could cry that one day they'll forget all that they're feeling. Oh, what a shame that our children should grow into people. Is that just kitsch sentimentalism? Or is it essential truth popularised? I wonder... Do you remember when you were very wee that you played Let's Pretend? Did you ever have a teddy bear's picnic or a dolly's tea party? There's a teapot of juice or water that tasted wonderful and the littlest treats to eat that made a magnificent feast. There's a very wise man called Donald Hilton who says that communion is a bit like a dolly's tea party or a teddy bear's picnic. We need pieces of bread cut into squares or broken from a loaf and tiny tastes of wine sipped from teeny glasses. A pretend banquet shared by people who are trying to follow Jesus. A real taste of something special as we remember God's love. Can you remember the story? It was one evening at the time of the special festival called Passover. Jesus sent his friends to get everything ready for the special meal, where they would remember how God had led the people of old out of slavery and into freedom. There would be psalms to sing and a lovely dinner to enjoy and bread and wine to share. And as they shared the meal, Jesus picked up the bread and said, This is my body, broken for you. Whenever you eat it, remember me. After dinner, he picked up a cup of wine and said, This is my blood, spilled for you. Whenever you drink it, remember me. So whenever people who are trying to follow Jesus share in tiny bites of bread and weeny sips of wine, they remember his words. And even though it isn't a proper meal, it is very, very real. So we are all invited by Jesus to take some bread and drink some wine and to remember him. But first, let's pray together. Thank you, God, for bread to eat and for the special meaning of this bread for us. Thank you, God, for wine to share and for the special meaning of wine for for us. Amen. So let's share the bread and remember how much God loves us.
and let's share wine and remember how much God loves us and all creation. And let's hold our glasses so that we can drink all together. So let's drink our wine together and remember how much God loves us. We remember that God loves us and sent Jesus to live as one of us. We remember in bread and wine all that Jesus has done for us. And we keep remembering over and over for all time. Amen. And so as our time together draws to a close, we join in one final song on the screen and at number 448 in the hymn book. Sent forth by God's blessing, our truth faith confessing, the people of God from his table take leave. As we go from here, reassured of our place within God's family and refreshed for the journey of faith, may each one of us know the blessing of God's love now 
and always. Amen. Thank you.